<clears throat> you should open it to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. Let me pray before I read this. <clears throat> Our great heavenly Father, we come before you this morning so grateful for the blessing of worship, of fellowship, of prayer, of having a day set aside where um, we can turn our feet from doing what we want to do and just rest in who you are and what you've done. For the next few minutes, Holy Spirit, we're going to need you desperately. I need you to anoint my mind, my heart, and my voice so that I speak clearly and correctly. I need you to anoint the ears and hearts and minds of those who listen, that they might be built up in their faith and encouraged to walk with you. And Holy Spirit, more than that, we pray that you would open the minds and hearts of those who don't know you, that you would break their hearts, that they might come to know you. What we're doing here has almost nothing to do with us, Father, so please be in our midst and help us. We beg you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. First <clears throat> Corinthians 15, verse 1 says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Uh, when presented with an opportunity... <clears throat> like the one <clears throat> I have this morning, a preacher faces a, kind of an interesting difficulty. Some of you know me very well, and some of you don't know me at all. So I have to strike this weird balance where um, I don't assume that all of you know things, biblically, doctrinally, theologically, but I also have to realize that a lot of you do know things, biblically, doctrinally, theologically. And uh, so my instinct in, in situations where I don't know my audience that well is to put aside the complicated, the nuanced, or whatever I might think is profound doctrinal theological stuff and just simplify and just go to the gospel, right? Keep it really, really easy for everybody and then everybody gets blessed because even the person who's been walking with Jesus for 40 years loves being reminded of the essential truths of the gospel. Amen? <clears throat> that brings us to our second problem. And this is one that we all have periodically. There was a guy, um, he was a political columnist back in the 1900s, uh, named Roscoe Drummond. And he had a quip about public speaking that has stuck with me for a long time because it's hilarious. <laughs> he says, uh, the human brain is an amazing thing. It starts working the moment that we are born, and it never stops until we get up to speak publicly. <laughs> <clears throat> we, 
when I say we're going to keep it simple and we're going to go just to the fundamentals of the gospel, the problem with that is not everybody in this room would even know what I mean by the fundamentals of the gospel. So that may not even be simple enough. And those of you who most certainly do know what I mean by the fundamentals of the gospel, if I said, hey, I want you to stand up here and spend the next 10 or so minutes explaining the fundamentals of the gospel, you would go into an abject panic. And it's not because you're not capable of speaking about the gospel. It's not because you don't understand the gospel or or believe the gospel, it's because you're not fluent in the gospel. If I said, get up here for 10 minutes and talk about something that you're really excited and passionate about, whether it's My Little Pony, or uh, Oracle Database Management, or video games, or quilting, or cooking, like there's probably something you could get up here and just talk about because you're fluent in it. It just may not be the gospel. So a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, actually, Kate, my middle daughter, came to me and expressed a desire to be baptized. And as a parent, when that happens, if you're a Christian parent, you are immediately over the moon. You try not to show it. You try to be cool. But you're over the moon because you kind of... In the back of your mind, from the time you start having kids, you realize that one of your primary responsibilities is keep this thing alive long enough for it to embrace Jesus. That's, that's what I have to do so far as I'm able. Right? So when one of your kids comes to you and says, and this will happen for hopefully a lot of you someday, one of your kids comes to you and says, hey, I think I believe, I think I want to get baptized, you get really excited. And then if you're a pastor, you immediately recuse yourself. You immediately say, well, I can't be the one to decide whether or not this profession of faith is true because I want more than anything for that profession of faith to be true. So you reach out to one of your pastor friends who's a sweetheart of a man that lives thousands of miles away and you set up a FaceTime call and you put your precious angel daughter on a FaceTime call with this pastor who's a sweetheart of a man and he says to her, Kate, it's great to see you. Tell me, what is the gospel? And if you're Kate, you immediately panic because you didn't know this was going to be that kind of a test, right? And for a couple of minutes, Kate wasn't sure, not minutes, a few seconds, Kate wasn't sure what to say. And I'm sitting where I can see her, but I can't see the computer, right? I just, I'm sitting right, and I see her face like, do one of these, and then I hear the words come out of her mouth because she's been taught this. She said the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Like she just went back to what she knew. But ask her to speak for 10 minutes about it, and the panic would probably resume, right? So what I want to do this morning is help us be a little bit more fluent in the gospel. I know we're literate. I know we understand and can articulate the basic principles, but I want us to be fluent. I want us to be the kind of public speakers when it comes to the gospel where we could get up with no notes and talk about what it is and what it means. So for the next three weeks, that's my goal, right? Starting right now at 1020. Mark 1.1 is where we're going to go. And here's the question for you that I want you to have rattling around in your brain all morning long. What is the gospel? Okay. Mark 1, 1. 
Mark writes and says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. Full stop. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you take the word gospel, ready? This is, you can start tuning out now if you're under the age of 30. If you take the word gospel in your English Bible, New Testament, and go back to the Greek, the word that you get is euangelion, which is kind of corresponds with evangelism, right? And all it means is good news. That's it. It's not a special word that Jesus came up with. It just means good news. So if we take gospel out of Mark 1.1 and just put in good news, this is how it reads. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's chat. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to answer me out loud. Is everybody ready? Would we be okay with that? A little public speaking. What is the gospel? Very good. You guys are excellent. So what does good news do? Like what, what makes news good? How is it different from just news news? It's true. Yeah. I I like to illustrate it this way. If you, I'll let you answer, but I'm just gonna keep going because I only have probably another 20 minutes. Um, If you go uh, one day to uh, write something down and you notice that your entire right hand is doing this thing, right? It's just trembling. Or you go to put your makeup on one day, you go to put your makeup on and you notice a new brown spot on your face. Or you're out for a jog and all of a sudden your heart starts racing and skipping beats and it won't stop. Or some other malady that just starts to happen one day and this is, we're not going to do the hacky comedian thing that we've all done with our friends, okay? But it, it is true. What do you do the minute you discover some new ailment? You go on the internet and you look up your symptoms. And what does the internet always say? The internet always says it's either cancer or it's AIDS or it's Ebola. It's something that's going to kill you, right? So you start freaking out a little bit. You start putting your affairs in order, working on your will. reach out to loved ones and ask them for prayer and you make a doctor's appointment and you go to the doctor and the doctor looks you over and he does that thing that they do where they kind of suck on their teeth (laughs) and he goes i don't know we're gonna have to do some tests and it'll be a few weeks before we know exactly what's going on here so you go back home you start working on your will even more you get real serious about reading your bible and praying right and you wait And then you get some news in a couple of weeks. Doctor calls and he says, listen, got the results back from that thing on your face. It's not skin cancer. It's just a solar lentigo. Something that happens as you get older. You'll get these spots. Great news, that tremor, it's not Parkinson's. You had too much coffee that day, (laughs) right? That's how good news works. It comes into a space where you're worried, where you're concerned, where you're afraid, where you're uncomfortable, and it shines light in that space. So good news, I think, really only has a function in a spot that's dark and scary and unsettling. And that's what makes it good. Quick test. What is the gospel? Very good. If we're going to appreciate the good news of the gospel, 
Would you agree if I said we need to first understand the bad news of sin and the fall? All right, so let's go Genesis chapter 1. What I'm going to do is read eight passages from Genesis 1. So if you like to tune out during scripture reading, uh, I'll make this as hard as I can for you. It's eight passages, and we're going to do an activity together. Every time you see the words, it was good, or just the word, we'll make it easy. Just every time you see the word good, let's all say it together, all right? This will be fun because everybody's got different translations of the Bible. <clears throat> so we're going to start with verse 4. God saw that the light was, and God separated light from darkness. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God created the sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25. This is the uh, sixth of our eight passages. Verse 25 says, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was. Pay attention. This one's got a trick. Verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Great job. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So what do we know so far? And remember, what we're going for is fluency. So we're going to keep it really simple. What we know so far is God created and it was good. good. That's it. So if you're writing notes and you already have a lot of stuff, I'm sorry. (laughs) I haven't said anything meaningful or profound yet. Just this, God created, and it was good. Everything he made was good. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now what do we know? What happens here? God gives a commandment, right? What happens to Adam and Eve if they obey the commandment? They live. Super simple. What happens to Adam and Eve if they disobey the commandment? They die. So what does God want them to do? Obey the commandment. Why does God want them to obey the commandment? So that they live. This is is still good. Everything is still good. The question that 
the atheist that I have coffee with periodically will pose to me, will put on the table is this. Why would God put the tree in the garden to begin with? You don't need a commandment if you just leave the tree out. And I was stumped the first time I got asked that question. And the way that I got asked it was, why would you put a loaded gun on the coffee table and then tell the three-year-old not to pick it up? Because that's what God did by putting this tree in the garden. And I was a little bit stumped and I had to think about it. Wait a minute. God created everything and it was good. There was nothing wrong with creation. And then God gave a commandment in, verse, in chapter 2 that was good. There was nothing wrong with the commandment. It must be that God who made us, made us like this. Your satisfaction in its deepest, most profound way is always going to be experienced in obedience. Your satisfaction is found when you are obeying God. That's how he made you. So of course he puts the tree in the garden. And of course he gives a prohibitive commandment. Don't eat from that one. Eat from all these. Leave that one alone. So what do we know now? Remember, fluency, we're going to keep it simple. First, we know that God commanded and it was. And we know that before that God created and it was. Yeah, that's what we know so far. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6, we're going to skip all the stuff about the snake. Don't worry about the snake. That's not important right now. Verse 6 of Genesis 3 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is us. This is you, and this is me. If if we just went, like, even with everything we know right now, if God took us back in time and put us in the garden and put the tree there, and gave the commandment, this is exactly what we would do. So don't get it twisted and sit there and be like low-key angry with Adam and Eve because you would have done the same exact thing. You would have eaten from the tree immediately. And then in, in eating from the tree, what did they do? What do we call that? We call that sin. Yeah, you would have sinned just like they sinned. God gave a commandment that was good. They violated the commandment that was evil. And what is the immediate result of sin? Fear, shame, and guilt. Always. You sin, now you're experiencing these three horrible things. Fear, shame, and guilt. I put fear first because one of the things that I discovered when I was very young is that you like you know intuitively when you when you sin like and it's usually against your parents right when you're very young right Audrey you sin against your parents and right away you have this sense of wait a minute all of the potential that I had for satisfaction and for the enjoyment of my relationship with my parents just got amputated I just broke it we may not get along so well now because they had an expectation and I didn't meet it. So what you feel is fear because even before dad knows you've done anything wrong, 
you're now operating under the expectation of him finding out that you did something wrong. So even while he doesn't know yet, you know, and it bothers you. He didn't change, but you did. You feel differently about your own father because of something that you did. And the dread that accompanies the knowledge that eventually he's going to know plagues you and keeps you up at night. He didn't do anything. You did something. So it's fear. Did dad change? Is dad different? Did dad do something wrong? No, he didn't. But we're afraid. Why? Has he proven to be an ogre in the past? And I'm sorry, listen, if you were not loved well by your father growing up, I'm not trying to rip open any wounds or go, you know, make you go back in time to a horrible, abusive relationship. I don't know that about you. So I'm assuming your dad kind of loved you well, kind of, okay, right? Like he took care of things. You didn't have a reason to fear him until you blew it. Fear grips the sinner because we violated the commandment and altered the relationship. So then uncertainty rules where soul-satisfying certainty should be. Fear always follows transgression. And then we have shame. Look at verse 7. Genesis 3, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. I believe they knew they were naked before. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that, but it's not like Adam and Eve were a couple of morons who couldn't look and see that the animals have fur and the birds have feathers and I got nothing. I think they knew that they were naked before. I think what happens is once the, 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 the image of God, the Imago Dei that was man and woman, once that had been corrupted, they didn't want to be seen anymore. They had marred the image. They ruined the painting. Nobody wants to be, have your imperfect work looked at. You want your perfect work looked at. And now they're not perfect anymore. And they see things about themselves that they didn't see before because they weren't true before. This is why we don't want anyone to see us because we're not good. It's not a self-esteem problem, kids. You're not awesome. And it doesn't matter how many times mom and dad tell you, you're amazing, everybody adores you. You know it's not true. That's not very probably politically correct and psychologically healthy to say things like that, but it's, it's, it's just reality. Like, why do you think we project confidence to one another that we're not really feeling? Because we want to come off a certain kind of way. That's why. why. Why is it when someone points our sins and imperfections out to us, we hate them? And maybe you're really sanctified and you don't, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Skip that illustration. But for the most part, like we rage against the exposure of our imperfections. This is why we talk a different way around certain people. And some of you right now are like, I'm not the only one that does that. No, you're not the only one that does that. This is why we pretend to like things that we don't really like. And we constantly try to impress one another. And this is why we hide ourselves from the piercing gaze of others. Because shame always follows sin. It also happens when we don't have the coolest clothes, the newest phones, the best talents, the highest paying praise and job from the boss. We want people to see the parts of us that are magnificent and only the parts of us that are magnificent because deep down inside, we know we're not magnificent, right? And then there's guilt. We're almost done. 
This one I think hurts the most because it's a negative emotion that we can't really come up with a solution to. Guilt is something we just can't do anything about. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, all of you who've heard this story before, I'm going to tell it because it works. Um, it works to, to explain what's happening with guilt. When I was seven, eight, or nine, like if I'm super gracious with myself, I was seven. If I'm super honest, I was probably closer to nine. I had a hamster. Sorry, Joel. It was a white, it was albino, so he had red eyes. It was a horrible creature. I don't know why I had it. Um, but I thought that it would be a really fun thing for the hamster to go for a ride on a basketball out my second story window. And the reason I thought it would be fun is because in my head, it was like a trampoline thing. Like the ball would go down, the hamster would compress into the ball and then bounce back up and I would catch him and it was going to be magnificent. I didn't understand physics that well. So I was either really dumb or really evil. And I really, I'm trying to be gracious with myself and say I was dumb because what happened when the ball went down is that it didn't really, the hamster did not, it just, it might as well just hit the ground, right? The basketball did not give much to the hamster other than pain. And somehow, somehow the hamster didn't die. I don't know how. But you can imagine the feeling I was feeling as I was racing down the stairs. Like, I should have just gone out the window. But I'm racing down the stairs to get the hamster and get it back in the house before anybody finds out what I had just done, right? And, and it seemed okay. Like, it wasn't moving a lot, but it seemed okay. It's like, shocked, right? And so I get it back up into the cage, and I'm just, like, looking at it, trying to figure out, is this thing going to live or die? And it lived for at least another few months. Like, it, it, somehow it didn't kill it. But what also followed me for the next few months was this unquenchable sense of guilt. I hadn't even meant to cause the thing harm, but it was the first time in my life I could remember being so overwrought with guilt over what I had done that I had no shelf to put it on. I couldn't organize the feelings that I was feeling. They were bigger than me. That's what guilt is. It's bigger than you. And when you sin, you immediately know that you're guilty. And the guilt sticks with you. It hangs with you with fear. Like you can run away or you can fight or you can hide. With fear, there's things you can do to, to scream and claw and kick and push back. We, you, like if you know you're going to get a spanking ahead of time, you can go put on some extra underwear. <laughs> right? Like we did that. That's a smart play. You're scared, so you do something about it. Someone like, I don't know about the rest of you, but every time we go on a road trip, the whole time that we're driving until we get back home safely in the garage, the, whole, the only thing I can think about is which light is going to come on the dash and how bad is it going to be and how remote a part of the country are we going to be in when it happens, right? It's, but you can put that fear away just by being like, I'm just going to trust God. Everything's going to be fine. We got the vehicle checked out. We take good care of our stuff. It'll be okay. But, but, but guilt, you can't do that. Fear, you can kind of do it. Like shame, you can kind of deal with shame. You can pretend, you can project, you can hide. There's things you can do with shame to deal with it. You can trick the eyes of others into seeing something about you that's not really true to deal with shame. There's deception you can engage in. You can even kind of solve the wounds of shame by sticking your chest out and acting like you don't care what anybody thinks, right? 
And then there's elements of shame that are different. Like you didn't even do anything wrong and you can feel shame. I remember there was this kid in junior high that uh, showed up to school one day with some of them Air Pordens on. Like they weren't the real Jordans. They were pumps. Like they had the tongue thing where you could squeeze it and pump it up with air, but they were spalding. They weren't Nikes. And I'm sure that the shame of that still plagues that dude to this day. And you've, you've been there, right? You showed up with your off-brand whatever or your, your crappy car. And you feel, this is like, not like you did something wrong and you still feel shame. So, so shame is the thing that makes you lay awake at night thinking about something you said three decades ago. It's not wrong. It's just, it's, it, it, it's just there. And you can suppress it. You can put it away. You can, you can go to counseling. You could, uh, you, can, you could confront the person who's shaming you. Like there's things you can do. You can move to another country and never see those people again that you shamed yourself in front of. There's things, but with guilt, there's nothing you can do because everywhere you go, the guilt is still there with you because you did the thing. When we sin... Immediately, fear, shame, and guilt. There's nothing for guilt. We know what we've done. We know what we deserve. Oh, wait, 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 wait. That's not true. You can lie. It wasn't me, God. It was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, God. It was the snake you made and put in the garden. So let me sin and then sin more by accusing the creator of being the one whose fault it is that I sinned. Now you've just got more guilt. And all of us who've ever lied know this feeling. I just made it worse. So there's nothing you can do with guilt. There's only more guilt for guilt. You can pay back what you stole, but you cannot repair the trust. You can take back what you said, but you cannot undo the hurt. You can say you're sorry, but sorry doesn't raise the dead. You can't fix guilt. Fear, shame, and guilt show up after we've sinned, and these things are heavy. We walk around like Quasimodo, just hunched over with this load we can't do anything with. And you know where you're going? To die. Because God said, in the day you break this commandment, dying, you will die. And all of us have broken many commandments. So you're going through life with fear, shame, guilt, headed for death. That is a dark space indeed. And that's like all we have time for. Next week, we'll look at four ways we try to fix it that we can't. But all we've got time for right now is that the gospel is the good news and the fall is the bad news. But I have to take you to the cross, right? Like we have to go to the cross. And if you want to close your eyes because it helps you imagine better, let's go to the cross right now. It's cold because it's spring in Israel. There's a breeze and it's just blowing cold air and dust around. And you're standing at a place that they call the skull in Hebrew. And it's because the rock face behind the three men are being crucified looks like a human skull. Eyes and nose opening. Two of the men that are being crucified there are criminals. And you know that. They're men of some renown. You know what they did. The one in the middle 
is the Son of God. And he hangs on the cross, drawing ragged breaths, because before they put him on that cross with nails, they blindfolded him and told him to prophesy. And they beat him while he was blindfolded. Who hit you? Prophesy. And they ripped out his beard. They whipped him with a whip laden with glass and nails and flayed the skin off of his back and his front. They stripped him naked and jammed a crown of thorns down over his brow so that blood and sweat was running into his eyes. He couldn't even see where he was going when they put the cross on his back and made him drag it 2,000 yards from the temple to Golgotha where they nailed him to it and put the cross into the ground and he now hangs. And as you stand there looking, you hear this man say out loud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the moment right there. I don't know what the beating exactly accomplished as far as my redemption goes, but I know I deserved those wounds that he took. I don't know why he had to get his beard ripped out. I don't know why he had to wear the crown of thorns other than so he could be mocked, so he could be shamed, so he could be fearful. But something happened in the moment when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something happened where the relationship between the father and the son was changed because 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. Jesus became the essence of sin. And do you know what the Holy Father cannot be in the presence of? Sin. He hates it. And he made his son to be sin. And his son died, I believe, separated from his father so that we could have our guilt atoned for. That's the good news. For all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, you will never, no matter how you die, you will never spend one moment of your life apart from your heavenly father because Jesus endured the worst suffering you could imagine for you. This is why the gospel is good news. You and I, we can't do anything about our guilt. So God did. He took care of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for enduring that which I've just described. But we thank you more for living a life which was perfect, sinless, and enduring that which I've just described, having deserved none of it while we deserved all of it. Father, we thank you that you made this covenant with your son before the foundation of the world to redeem a people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. Holy Spirit, we thank you for even now working in the hearts and minds of all those in this room to make us aware of our sin and to save us from it. 
we just magnify and praise you. And as we close this morning, we ask Jesus that you would help us to spend the rest of this day in whatever we do, making a big deal about you and less of a deal about us. It's for your beautiful name that we pray this. Amen. Amen.